In this episode of Boss Files. 11 years old was when I first felt handcuffs on my wrist. Wes Moore, a kid from Baltimore who's become a champion for fighting poverty. An author, a veteran, an entrepreneur, he's the new CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, a nonprofit with the sole focus of eradicating poverty. He says we need to create a battle plan to fight poverty. We have kids, we have people who are living in a state of chaos, and for many of them, it's to no fault of their own. This is what they were born into. This is what they're being raised in. They are living in communities and communities that I know very well that have been chronically and intentionally neglected. Chaos. Have Republican Democratic administrations taken this seriously enough since the war on poverty was launched. No. Why he says both political parties are failing the American people on this front. Plus, the other Westmore, his remarkable account of his life and why another Westmore who grew up in Baltimore at the same time as him landed in prison for life. Why did two boys with the same name from similar circumstances take such different paths? How his childhood inspired his mission today Here's my conversation with Wes Moore. Wes Moore, it is so nice to be sitting with you. It is such a pleasure to sit with you, Poppy. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to talk about what you're doing now at the Robin Hood Foundation, dedicated to alleviating poverty in New York City, in our great city. But before that, let's just talk about you and your life. And let's start with Baltimore. So you, Wes Moore, raised in Baltimore by a single mom after your father passed away when you were young. What was your childhood like? Um... You know, it's funny. I think, I think my childhood was full of love, uh, but I think my childhood was full of complications that I think my family tried their best to keep me away from. Yeah. Uh, we didn't grow up in great neighborhoods. Um, and, and my father, you know, died unexpectedly. I mean, my mother, when I was four years old, you know, my mother became a widow very unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was not prepared. And, and because this was not the life that she had ever imagined, mm-hmm. that she was now going to raise three kids on her own uh, and this is a woman in her 20s and uh, you know this was actually her her, her second marriage of the first time uh, the first time she was married where she actually had my older sister uh, her husband was incredibly abusive uh, was a drug addict and uh, and you know eventually uh, he beat her one final time and she just said I'm not gonna That's do this it. anymore I'm done But because she lived through that your father taught you what it really is to be a man yeah and although you had him for such a short period of time, the memories that you bring alive for us in your book, The Other West Moore, I mean, he, he was you know, a radio host, a journalist, signing off of his radio show the last time saying, yeah. I think, until next time, right? Until next time. What do you think about when you think of your dad? You know, I think about the fact that I really only have two memories of him. Hmm. Uh, and the first memory, even going back to uh, what it meant to teach me to be a man, was you know uh, my mother had a had a bunch of rules in her, in her house, but one of her big rules, and because of her own past, was that men do not put their hands on women. And um, and so when I'd fight my older sister, my mother would always interject and, and say it was always my fault. No matter what was going on, it was always my fault. Sure. She'd be like, you know, you do not put your hands on women. You do not put your hands on women. Um, and I remember one time I punch my sister because she was bothering me and my mother saw it and she starts coming after me I'm sprinting in the other direction because I just (laughs) I know it's about to come and my father really was the one who helped to intervene and he told you he told me he said he said uh you know uh you you don't put your hands on women you protect them Mm -hmm. and he said and you don't put your hands on your family you protect them and he had me go downstairs to go apologize to my mother and to my sister, but he came with me. And I remember watching him and staring at him as we were walking down together because he was my protector. At that moment, I knew he was the only person standing between me and, and, and the beating I was about to get from my mom. Um, and the only other memory that I have of him was about six months later when I watched him die. And, uh, you know, and so when I think about him, and I think about him now, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that I will see him again one day. He called you main man. Main man. How he died is tragic because from your account, it was preventable. Yes. He got very sick pretty fast. Rush him to the hospital. Doctors look at him. Everything, you know, it's all right. Go home. Treat it like you would just some average sort of malady, right? right? Five hours later, 
he dies. And you talk about the social injustice that you believe contributed to, if not led to, his death. Absolutely. The, the fact that when he first went to the hospital, there was an assumption that he didn't have health insurance. Mm. Um, Why? Because of how he was dressed, mm. because of what he looked like. Uh, and I think the, one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about this work and this issue is because I think for far too many people that hasn't changed where we can make very quick and glib assumptions about people that have real life human consequences. And, and I think when my, what my father needed at that point was he needed help. He didn't need to be met with skepticism. He needed to be met with support. And when he was released with uh, the simple instructions of, you know, get some rest and calls if, if, if things seem to get worse, uh, I will never ever forget my mother's reaction when everything took place. Yeah. Her anger, her fear of what this now meant for her. Your family. And our, and our, and our entire family. And, and you know, and I think about it where even after he passed away, um, you know, the, especially for the thing that he had was something called acute epiglottitis, which is basically the epiglottis for all of us every time we, ch we chew or we speak, our epiglottis lifts in the air and allows air in. And basically what he had with acute epiglottitis was a swelling of the epiglottis that eventually got so heavy that it just sits on top of your air pipe, your so windpipe. And so his body suffocated itself. And my mother went on a singular mission to do two things. One was to protect her children. And the second singular mission she went on was to make sure that that could never happen again. And so actually even worked to make sure that emergency crews, even before there was a way, there was a procedure you can actually do, which is now common practice, uh, but back then was not. Right. That emergency crews now knew what to do if you had someone who was suffering from this, that there was actually a procedure where you can go and actually lift the epiglottis up and allow air inside of the person's body. How much of your life, West now, because it is extraordinary, you go on to be a Rhodes Scholar, you serve in the military, you, you now are CEO at the ripe old age of 38. <laughs> uh, how much of that is for your dad? I don't, you know, it's interesting because I don't think so much of it is for him. <clears throat> I think a lot of it is because of him. Mm. I, I think that, you know, I am, I'm utterly convinced that he's up there calling in favors. You know, he's up there moving things out of the way. I think about that a lot with mine too, for sure. So you're, you move uh, to the Bronx, you come here to New York. Again, not a great neighborhood, not a great setting, but somehow your mother, <laughs> who deserves a whole lot of credit, gets you guys into really good private school. Yeah. Private school I'd love for my niece and nephew to go to. <laughs> uh, and you don't fit in. At all. These are kids talking about <laughs> summering in Europe, and you're like, my summer house in the Bronx. <laughs> what was that? It must have been sort of surreal for you. It was good. Well, it was like, and I, I say, until I went there, I didn't realize that summer was a verb. Like, I thought <laughs> that people just summered as if this yes. is like an action that people yes. did. I thought it was a time of the year. Um, I, think it's, I think you're right. It is <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I, I, I learned a lot. But you know, one of the things I really learned um, was. I learned how to be a chameleon, mm. and it wasn't a good thing. Where I felt like I was never comfortable in my own skin at a time when you're just trying to get comfortable with yourself. Totally. And so I very quickly would find myself leaving my neighborhood, which was completely and intentionally neglected, for decades mm. neglected, then going across town to this school that was a wonderful, beautiful school. And the reason that my mother was really excited about it was because she was like, this is a school that she wanted her children to go to that she'd heard about, but yeah. she never thought she could go. And she was working three different jobs. Yeah, to make it happen. To make and, it happen. And you talk about being too poor for the kids in my new school, but too rich for the kids in my neighborhood. So yeah. you, you were a chameleon who didn't really fit in anywhere. Anywhere. I would go home and, and kids were like, oh, I guess he's too good for us now. Mm. And I'd go to school and they're like, where do you live? And so I'm like, everywhere I go, I'm just trying to have basic ways of fitting in. And, and honestly, I think the way that that, what it manifested itself to, was I would then do whatever was asked to fit in. To fit in. Which included some not great behavior. Which, which included getting in trouble with the law. That's right. By uh, 11. 
At 11 years old. 11 years old was when I first fell handcuffs on my wrist. And, and, and this is the thing. It's like I found myself in a situation where, you know, and that's why I feel like for so many kids and for so many young people that are coming up, all they're really looking for is a sense of acceptance. All they're really looking for is a sense of belonging and a, and a, and a, and a sense of, you know, and a, and a sense of comfort. And I felt like I felt my comfort and I felt my belonging in places and around people that frankly never had my best interest at heart, but I was really more there to entertain them. So you, you did have this run in with the law at 11, but something went off in your brain, something turned around. You went to military school, which we'll get into in a moment, which yeah. I mean, maybe saved your life. Um, I would say the things that happened there. Saved you. Saved me. At the same time, you're coming up uh, in Baltimore as another Westmore, same name, and this is the book that you wrote about that really made you so well-known uh, even before you were CEO, and he had an opposite trajectory, and we'll get into that, but why do you think you succeeded when so many in your circumstance did not? I think that um, I'd be naive to say if luck didn't play a part in it. Okay. Um, and I think there's an inherent problem in that because kids shouldn't have to be lucky to make it. Yeah. Luck shouldn't be the thing that we're relying on. Um, and I think that also I, I found myself really surrounded by people. Um, and it's people, and it, and it started with my mom and my grandparents. Um, but eventually, and other family members, right? But I think it eventually led to this whole string of coaches and teachers and counselors and principals and ministers and you know that helped me to understand that the world was bigger than what was just in front of mm. me and that you know and that helped me to understand that that uh you know that there were no accidents of my birth right there was not being black not being poor not being from baltimore not being from the bronx not being fatherless mm -hmm. that should ever define me that should ever limit me nor anything i should be ashamed of and I think what they did was they really taught me to embrace the things that had already been set up for me, but that I was almost too busy getting in my own way to be able to understand it. But these are people who helped you, led you to things like, you know, applying for the Rhodes Scholarship. Yeah. For, you know, you, you had a stint in the White House. You, you graduated Phi Beta Kappa at Johns Hopkins. Yeah. All of these wonderful things happened to you, but you made happen in your life too. When was the inflection point? Maybe it was military school. I don't know. When was, when was the turning point? You know, I, um, it's interesting because I, I definitely don't think there was a singular moment when it all started making sense. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Cause like, I still even feel like to this day, all of our lives, is, it's two steps forward and one step back, yeah. right? Everything we do. Um, so there was never a moment where it was like, now I got it. I think one thing that did matter though, and, and this happened at military school, even though I don't think this is something inherently with the military, mm -hmm. was, is when leadership was first introduced into my life. When you saw those, yes. those leaders, yes. young leaders that you admired. That, that not only that I admired, and then I became one, right? Because when people think about the military, military school, there's this idea that, oh yeah, it's great because they wake you up early and they teach you discipline. <laughs> yell at you. And they yell at you, right? And they <laughs> scream. And that's, yeah, I got screamed at and then it all started making sense. That's not the virtue of it, right? right. The virtue, that's, that's, that's the process. Uh -huh. That's okay, you're new there and we're going to treat you like garbage and, and that's just the way that the process works. Don't take it personal. It's happened before. It's going to happen after you leave, right? But really what happens is they introduce leadership into your life and they're very intentional about it and they're going to put you in charge of something small and then they're going to see how you do and then as you do that well, they'll promote you and then to put you in charge of something bigger, and then they'll promote you, mm -hmm. and then you start taking leadership seriously. You start taking this idea that you have a real sense of belonging, and this organization, this unit, this entity, it needs you. It needs you to succeed, and you play a critical and important role in it. Now, the interesting thing about it is, I think about everything that's happening with gangs and drug organizations inside of our cities, and when people say how complicated they are, my only answer is they're not complicated. They're, they're, they're the same thing as every Fortune 500 company. They're the same thing as every military organization. They just take a model of leadership, and they carbon copy it, mm. you know? So when, when, when they're first recruiting us at eight, eight years old, nine years old, they're not recruiting you to be a kingpin. Mm. They're recruiting you to be a lookout. Right. And your job is to have a little job and you yell the name of the week or you yell the name of the day when a cop car rolls by or when someone comes into the neighborhood. And it's a basic job. 
right? And then you do that well and you get promoted. Now you're a, you're, you're, you're a, a, a runner. And you do that well, then you get promoted. You're a cash kid, you get to do that well. Now you're promoted, you're a houseman, you get promoted. You're muscle, you get promoted, you're a lieutenant. It's the same exact structure. So I think what happened to me wasn't the fact that the military introduced discipline. It was about the fact that I found a passion for leadership. Mm. And I found a passion for doing something and being in a place where you know your belonging actually matters. And frankly, your circumstance, even though you were born into a difficult neighborhood, not a lot of money, but your mom pushed these three jobs, all of these people around you pushed so that you could be exposed to that desire for leadership, those examples of leadership in an environment where you could succeed and, and achieve so much more than the other Westmore, the, t- I, the title of your book. I mean, you read about him yeah. in the newspaper. You're a young adult at this yeah, time. That's right. Tell us about the other Westmore. So and, and when I was, uh, it was actually right after I received the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, the Baltimore Sun writes this article about this local kid who, despite everything that you said, just received this Rhodes Scholarship. And I was getting ready to head to England yeah. on the scholarship. And at the same time, they're writing a whole series of articles about uh, four guys who walk into a jewelry store. And two have guns, and two have hammers, mallets. And they got about $400,000 worth of jewelry. The ones with the guns kept everyone on the ground. The ones with the mallets were just smashing out cases and taking watches and necklaces. And, uh, and one of the people that was inside the store that day was an off-duty police officer. And he was moonlighting as a security guard. What's his name? It's always important to remember. Sergeant, Sergeant Bruce Prothrow. Remember him and his family that Absolutely. were left without him. Absolutely. February 7th of 2000. He went to work one day and didn't come home. I will never forget that day. I will never forget his name. And Westmore, the other Westmore, who you, who you penned the book about your two lives and how different they are, though you started from very much the same place. No. Now he's serving a life sentence in prison. He was, uh, when there was a 12-day national manhunt for those four guys. Mm. Um, and, and to be clear, I mean, Sergeant Prothrow, he was a 13-year veteran of the Baltimore Police Force. He was a, a three-time recipient of Police Officer of the Year. He was a father of five. He just had triplets. And the reason he was working that day was because it was his day off from the police force, but he took on a second job to make extra time. money. Yeah. For some overtime money. So you start writing letters to Westmore in prison. Yeah. And I mean, what do you expect is to come from this? I mean, maybe you didn't even think he'd write you back. I didn't think he'd write me back. I mean, because I, I thought to myself, like, why would he? You know, like, sure. and, and the first letter that I wrote him was like, hey, Wes, my name is Wes. Here's how I heard about you. And I had these questions. And then a month later, I got a letter back from Jessup Correctional Institution from Wes. And, and I tell you, Poppy, it, it would be if the letter that he wrote was gibberish, if the letter that he wrote made no sense, if instead of using words, he used pictures, if it was something like that, I honestly would have looked at that letter and said, this actually makes a bit more sense now. I get it. Mm. It was one of the most articulate letters I've ever read in my life. And it only led to more questions. And then that one letter turned to dozens of letters, the dozens of letters turned to dozens of visits. I, uh, I had known Wes for years. And then finally, I actually had a friend of mine who, and she's like a real writer. She like writes books all the time. And, uh, and she said to me, she's like, have you ever thought about writing about this story? And I was like, ah, you know, I was like, I'm busy and I don't want to dig that deeply into his life. I don't want to dig that deep in my own or definitely want to share it. And uh, there was two things that she said that I thought were really important. One was she reminded me of a quote by a guy, a guy named Eben Burke, mm-hmm. who once said, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And then I thought about something that Wes told me. When I went to go see Wes about it, uh, you know, I told him, I said, hey, I was actually approached about doing this thing. And he said, I've wasted every opportunity that I've ever had in life, and I'm gonna die in here. And he said, if you can do something to help people understand the consequences for their decisions, and also do something to help people understand the neighborhoods that these decisions are being made in, then you should do it. And that then became the fire and the focus behind the entire project. Do you feel like, and you're still in touch with him, do you ever feel like you are in some ways living your life for you and for him, the life he can't live? Or trying to change circumstance for kids like him? Well, you know, one thing I've been really amazed with Wes is how much he's focused on that. How much he's focused on trying to change the circumstance for kids who are coming up. Even from inside jail. Even from inside. He understands his, he understands his, his fate. Um, 
I think what he wants to do now is change the fate of people who are coming behind and change the fate of kids. So what's he doing? So, you know, so it's interesting. One, you know, every kid in every school that writes him, now we have now received thousands of letters from kids and parents sure. and teachers, et cetera. Uh, every one that he gets, he responds to. And he, and he also spends a lot of time with a lot of people who are on the inside. Because the truth is, if you talk about, let's just take criminal justice as, as one example, 95% of people who are incarcerated, they're coming home. You know, they're returning to their communities. And how we prepare them for their reentry and how we, how our, how we prepare society for the, their reentry is going to matter. And Wes spends a lot of time with people who are, you know, who are, who are the shorties, right? The ones who are getting ready to come out. Yeah. And, and tells them, this is not a game. Don't come back here. Don't come back here. You do not want to make this your life. You do not want to make this your existence. And, and I think when going through the process of, of writing the story, one of the things that always got me about the story was how quick people were to either congratulate or castigate, right? Without understanding the backgrounds of how we got there yeah. and what is keeping us going. And so that's one of the things and one of the reasons that I wanted to tell the story as we did, you know, start the story at its most elementary points of a four-year-old who loses his father and for him a six-year-old who meets his father for the first time, mm. right? Start there and then let's take a journey on what ends up happening that causes this split and know and help people to see that that line between these two lives is amazingly thin. Amazingly thin. Amazingly thin. Your work today now, you are the newly appointed CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, yeah. which for people listening around the world or the country who are not familiar with it, you're, your work focuses here in New York City and it's about alleviating poverty. Yeah. What is your mission? Our mission is to make sure that more people who are in poverty, that we can move them out as quickly and as permanently as possible and to make sure that those who are on the cusp, and there are millions who are right on the cusp, don't end up falling through. You know, in New York City alone, there are 1.8 million New Yorkers who are living in poverty. Yeah. And in the country, it's 40 million. And in the Bronx, where you grew up, it's two and five kids. It's two and five kids. We have a situation in our society right now where it's far too easy for people to fall into poverty and it's far too complicated to be able to get them out. And Robin Hood really for the past 30 years, uh, and, and to your point, it's been you know New York born, New York bred, New York focused, uh, and has really been driving on the issue of making sure that we can truly move poverty alleviation to the top of the conversation and to make sure that we can keep it there. But how do you do that? And I don't mean to be a skeptic. This is an issue I care deeply about, that, that our team spends a good amount of time in the field all over the country reporting on these issues of poverty from, you know, Bridgeport, Connecticut, where we did a whole series on food stamps. Kids on, you know, you got 40% of kids that are living on food stamps to Beattyville, Kentucky, one of the poorest white towns in the entire country. Yeah. But when I think that it was the 1950s when President Johnson sat on that stoop in Inez, Kentucky, and declared the war on poverty, and I think where we are today, it is frustrating to say the least, uh, and it is, it is deadly for people that are living it and devastating. So why should we have hope? Well, I think we should have hope for, for a couple different reasons, right? One is uh, it's impossible to understate the fact that we have been able to make real progress on this fight. And there are people, and I can tell you from a very personal perspective, there are people who have been able to move and social mobility has been able to occur because people have cared, because people have understood that poverty and the chronic nature of poverty is something that we actually can fundamentally address. The other thing though that I think that we have to be able to push hard on is not just changing a narrative around people living in poverty because you know I, I, I think about the fact that you know we've had people and leaders who, uh, who somehow think that people are in poverty because they choose to be there mm -hmm. because this is something that they opt for. Uh, you know, the people who we serve, the people who we work with, these are people who are doing everything in their power and trying their hardest to move their family to a better in a different place. Uh, our job has to be to move those things out of the way to include not just the philanthropic dollars that we put together, right. but also how do we create policies that make it easier for people to actually increase mobility. You talk about the psychological impact on poverty. Can you dive into that? I mean, the chronic nature of it? Yes. 
And it's, it's, it's the fact that poverty actually has impacts not just on you know, families physically, but it also has, on, has psychological and mental impacts on families as well. And forget about just the brain science, right? Because actually the brain science shows us that for a child growing up in poverty, there are actually impacts on the brain of what it's like to grow up in poverty. Right. But it's also the psychological impacts. It's also the fact that we have young people who are growing up and feeling like they're on their own in this. We have young people who are growing up and feeling like they don't have the same kind of options and optionality as everybody else. And what that's going to mean in terms of their long-term contribution to our large society. Do they feel a vested interest? And I think, you know, my mother once said it where she said, you know, people need to think that you care before they care what you think. People need to think you care before they care what you think. And, and frankly, we've got a lot of people who are growing up in the society who are feeling fully and completely disconnected. You mentioned the actual impact on the brain for children of growing up in poverty. Yeah. What is that? So you can look at how, how brain structure and how brain function actually works, right? Uh, you know, first, the last portion of the brain to actually to, to develop is the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is actually the part judgment. of the, is, is the judgment, right? And, 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 and science actually shows that it can really be up to 23 to 25 year, years old when the prefrontal cortex actually has full development and full capacity uh-huh. to be able to make full structural decisions that people should be held accountable for. But what you also see is for children who are growing up in poverty, not just the nutrition that, then, that the uh-huh. body then needs for full development, but it's also the mechanisms and the structures of higher expectations mm. that come on board. You know, I, I think about it this way, and, you know, Robin Hood has done a lot of work now uh, in, in, in various areas dealing with poverty alleviation from housing to food, food. to education to yep. criminal justice reform, etc. But let's just take the idea of early childhood learning as just one example. And the impact of a child's brain from the earliest stages, when we know the fact that 80% of all brain capacity is actually going to take place before that child's fifth birthday. Um, I think about it in respect of even my own child and where I saw it, right? Our daughter, when she was conceived and in a beautiful state, yes, right, uh, and she was baking and growing inside of my wife, um, I would read to her, to her every day. My husband did that sometimes. It's the best, right? It's the best. And my wife thought I was nuts, right? But I was <laughs> reading to her stomach while our daughter was, was growing. Was growing. She was born, and at first she was she didn't cry. She just kind of came out, and she's mm. just kind of there. And then the doctor started doing the things all the doctors do to kids, right? They start doing the poking, they yeah. do the, the prodding, the sticking the things in their noses and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then she starts wailing and crying and crying and crying because everything felt foreign now. She's, like, stretching out. She's seeing lights. People are touching her. Right. She's scared. Nothing, everything is, is, is different and new and terrifying to her. And they bring her over to the incubator with all the lights and all that kind of stuff, and she's still crying. And I remember going over to her and just talking with her and just telling her, you know, welcome, and we love you, and we're so happy to see you. And she stops crying. Because your voice was familiar. Your voice was familiar. When everything in the world is chaotic, Mm -hmm. out of nowhere she hears something that sounds familiar, and it gives her peace. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's part of our job. We have kids, we have people, who are living in a state of chaos, and for many of them, it's to no fault of their own. This is what they were born into. This is what they're being raised in. They are living in communities and communities that I know very well that have been chronically and intentionally neglected. Chaos. You argue we need a battle plan, your words, a battle plan for the poor. Yes. Have Republican Democratic administrations taken this seriously enough since the war on poverty was launched? If we still need a battle plan by privately funded organizations like Robin Hood, no is your answer. No. And, 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 and I don't think that's even a partisan issue. I think that we have watched neglect on both sides on this issue. I think we've watched we've watched sporadic and we've watched completely broken up policies that have had impacts on actually increasing the psychological damage that, co- that poverty creates on people. Um, and again, it, it has nothing to do with the Pacific Party. We're taught, we can look at the fact that in 1973, that Richard Nixon you know, cut all, all HUD programs, and that's everything from, from federally subsidized housing to college housing programs. Then you look fast forward and you talk about what happened during, during, during the 1980s, and, and when you have homelessness that, that, that skyrocketed while we were busy giving tax cuts, 
And then and you have a president who, even as he's leaving office, gives an interview and says that, you know, and I'll paraphrase, but that for many people who are homeless, that this is a choice. It's a choice to live in the streets. You can then fast forward and look at the fact that 23 years ago, we had a crime bill that was passed. And since that crime bill was passed, federal incarceration has doubled. I mean, so you're talking about Nixon, Reagan, Clinton. This spans parties. This spans parties. It spans administrations. It spans policies. But, but, and, and that's, I think, part of the role that philanthropy also has to understand yeah. in our work. But it's also the it's also zip codes. I mean, you yes. talk a lot about and our Fareed Zakaria here talks a lot about sort of social mobility and how that has declined yes. and you know, where you are born now determines so much of what you become and what you can become. Those are I mean, you can't change, you can't tear these projects down. You can so what how much can 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 private organizations do? What can Robin Hood do? I mean, do you encourage, certainly rezoning with schools, yeah. there's the argument that can really help. Um, what do you think? I, I think, I think there's, a, there's a, a, a few important things that, that philanthropies individually can do in this conversation. And you're absolutely right. I mean, mobility has slowed to the point that it's basically fundamentally stopped in many areas, right? I mean, it's bizarre that I live in Brooklyn in a neighborhood of Brooklyn, very prosperous, yeah. that is less than a mile from these housing projects. Yes. And yes, I work at the Boys and Girls Club near there. Yes, I help out when I can. That is not to say that those that my friends live in those housing projects. Yes. That's a problem. That's a problem that we're divided by less than a mile, and that is, that is my existence. And frankly, it's a problem that I alone can solve, but it's also a problem of why are we sectioned off in our own cities? Yes. I mean, New York, it's, it's one of the cities where this is the biggest problem. That's right. But understanding the fact that this is also not just a New York issue, and I think that's one thing that Robin had also you know, continues to look and explore, the fact that poverty is not a New York issue alone. Right. And then how do we then expand the impacts? But you know, you take a look at, take a look at Baltimore, for example. In the Roland Park community of Baltimore, right. the Roland Park community of Baltimore is about a little less than two miles away from Sandtown, Winchester, area of Baltimore. Less than two mile difference, right? The difference in life expectancy, 20 years. Less than two miles because of one year zip life expectancy code. because of zip code. So we have a fundamental reality in this country that oftentimes if you're born poor, you'll die that way too. The role that philanthropy can uniquely play in that mm-hmm. is this. You know, one, it's understanding the fact that philanthropy can push dollars and resources and attention to things that are interesting and experimental and then help them to move to scale have an interesting concept that you can then push out to show how does it become wide scale. So for example, Robinhood was one of the first organizations that actually invested in needle exchanges. And they invested in needle exchanges before anyone would touch it. It was Mm. too controversial back then. Now, Robinhood no longer invests in needle exchanges. Nobody does. The reason is because the federal government does it. But the federal government was not going to be the first dollars in. Philanthropy could play that role in showing a best practice that it then needs to be scaled. The other interesting thing and the other powerful thing about philanthropy that's unique is this. Robinhood is the largest and most effective poverty-fighting organization in New York City, and it's one of the largest in the country. I would still argue, though, that Robinhood's power is not just in its purse. It's in his voice. It's the fact that when Robinhood and Robinhood Nation speaks, people will pay attention. And this is where policy plays into this. Philanthropy alone cannot mm. move the needle on poverty significantly, or not significantly enough. Yeah. Philanthropy alone will not be able to undo what policies have created. We have to be able to make sure that we are having policies that reflect where we want to be as a large society. So is there one policy now that if you were sitting at the White House talking to the Trump administration, or if back when President Obama was president, if you're sitting there and saying, this is the one policy that we need you on board with and Congress on board with to change. Is there one right now that would move the needle? Well, I, I actually think the reason that I say we need to create a battle plan for poverty is the fact that there is no one thing that's going to move us out of this. There's not one thing that got but us here. But even move the needle the most. I mean... Yeah. Well, I, I think, and also I think we have to understand the holistic nature of poverty, right? I, I think, you know, we didn't get here because of one thing, therefore we're not going to get out because of one thing. So I think we have to be able to be very clear about the way we're going to address transportation. 
inside of inside of communities and neighborhoods. The fact is, you know, if it if it now takes someone, if it will take someone sixty to seventy minutes mm-hmm. to go five miles to get to work because of poor transportation assets, that was intentional, and it needs to be intentionally undone. We have to be able to rethink the, the rethink the way we have our criminal justice system and a criminal justice policy in this country. The fact that we have people who we have in Rikers Island, Rikers Island alone tonight in New York City, there are ten thousand people who will spend the night in Rikers Island. 8,000 of them have not been convicted of a crime. Looks like changes are coming to Rikers. It, 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 it does, and I think that for the families who are being directly impacted by them, they cannot come fast enough. We have to have a sense of urgency in the way we're going to fight this war. There are these examples. I mean, Harlem, Harlem Children's Zone. Yeah. Uh, it works. Yes. But it's a lottery system, and not enough kids can get into it. Why is something like that not scalable? Why can that not be all public schools in New York City, for example. Well, you know, it's interesting, and Harlem Children's Zone is actually one of the one of the first uh, one of the first community partners that Robinhood invested in, uh, and continues to support. Uh, and I think that one thing we've seen actually with that is we've actually started to watch elements of scale that's taking place, and not just within Harlem Children's Zone, not just the fact that that when Jeff Canada first started, it first started off with a couple blocks, and now he's basically got like you know. 10,000 blocks in Harlem that the Harlem Children's Zone now touches, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of lives of kids whose lives have been positively affected by it. But it is about how do we understand the best practices that we're going to take away? How do we push on different elements that, that, that frankly, are curbing the support of our kids? When we have a, ch- when we have a child who's attending a, sc- who's attending a school that has, you know, has you know, chronic, chronic dropout rates, when we have children that are attending schools and they have to worry about basic elements of safety getting to and from school. Right. You know, I can tell you just, uh, you know, just recently we have, uh, you know, one of, one of the, the KIPP schools here in New York City. A senior, senior, was just shot and killed. At a KIPP charter school. At a KIPP charter school. We have to understand that there's not going to be one solution to this. Why do we not pay our teachers like we pay our executives? If they are in charge of helping raise our children yes. and form the brains of our children, why are they not compensated like that? You are absolutely right. They need to be compensated more. And, here, and here's the thing, Poppy. If we look at budgets, right, um, you show me your budget, you're showing me what you care about, right? And that can say on a personal basis. If you were to say, Wes, here's what I spend my money on every month, I can look at that and tell you, well, I can, it, I can now see what Poppy cares about because this is what she spends her money on. Well, our budgets are no different, right? The things we spend our money on as a government, the things we spend our money on as a society are things that we're showing that we care about. And people will say, well, we put, we put so much money into education. We put so much money into that. So it's showing that we do care about it. But yes, but it's also about identifying and examining what are the things that are working inside of those areas. And we cannot just have budgets just for budget's sake. Mm. Every single year, it's a statement about who we are. And look, you're not someone who I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, would say slash the military budget. You served in the military. You, right. you left your big corporate job to go to Afghanistan, to be part of the 82nd Airborne. That's right. So this does not have to be this or that. No. But what it does need to do, it needs to be a full and complete and an honest evaluation about mm. who we are. I can tell you right now, and you're right, I'm a, I'm a very proud military veteran. And, and I'm a very proud advocate on veterans' issues. And I think folks who know and who know me well know that there is no more vocal an advocate on veterans' issues than I am and have been and will continue to be. I also know this. The greatest threats we have in our society will not be one with Kevlars and flak vests and M4s. Mm. The greatest threat we have in our society right now is the fact that we have so much human capital and human potential inside of our country that is not being unearthed. The fact that we have more and more people that find themselves more and more disillusioned with any form of connection to our large society are the greatest thing that we can do is not just necessarily what can we do to spend more and build more in our military and worry about you know, our threats, you know, our, our threats, you know, our foreign threats, but it's what are we doing to unleash At our home. domestic assets. President has talked about, I mean, his platform is America first. I don't know your politics. I don't know if you want to get into politics. Yeah. Feel free. Yeah. What do you, I mean, is the president putting these things first? Is he putting America first? What does that mean to you 
What do you want to see? I, I think being America first means doing what it takes to make sure that American interests are being supported and being and being propelled. And I think part of that means that we have to be a good neighbor and a good partner. I, I think that when we're talking about America first, we're also talking about addressing issues of poverty. We're addressing the fact that we have such a high portion of our population that in no way, shape, or form is going to be part of a bigger and a broader conversation, and that they're born into that. The fact that we still have structural damage and structural histories that is generational in its making, and at the same time, things that we know that we can and should do something about if we so choose to. So you uh, were very forthcoming in your thoughts about, uh, about President Trump and his comments following the violence in Charlottesville, yep. so much so that you wrote a, uh, a piece, an opinion piece in the Washington Post, and the, the headline is this, the KKK chased my grandfather from the U.S., but he returned. Here's what he would say now. Yeah. Tell that story. My, uh, so my grandfather was actually the first one on, on my mother's side of, the, side of the family that was actually born in this country. Um, his family was Jamaican. They came to this country. My great-grandfather was a minister. They came to this country and they moved to South Carolina. Uh, and my grandfather, and I think probably in the history of the rest of my family, was very vocal and was an activist and started getting countless death threats to the point that eventually he thought that the only safe thing that he could do at that point was to move his family out. And not just out of South Carolina, not out of a certain region, it was out of this country. And so when my grandfather was just a toddler, he moved back to Jamaica from the home that he was born into. My great-grandparents wanted nothing to do with this country. Um, they were not just scared, but angry about what this country did. But my grandfather always had a dream of coming back. And when he eventually went on, he did his schooling, and he said, I want to do my schooling in the, in the, in the, in the U.S., and he came back, and, and finally he did his schooling in the U.S., he became a minister here, and then moved his family back to the United States, moved his family actually back into the, into the Bronx, into the same mm. house that he raised us. And I've never met a more patriotic man in my life. He didn't have to come back here. He did, he chose to come back here, and he chose to fight for this country. He chose to fight for the greatest ideals of this country. And he chose to be vocal about what this country is supposed to stand for. And so when the reason that I penned that piece is the first person I thought about when I watched, when I watched, you know, this, not just the violence, but the anger and the tolerated anger that was then taking place in Charlottesville, the first person I thought about was my grandfather. The president said both sides, okay? He called out, eventually, the, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, but he also said there's, there's blame on both sides. What would your grandfather say? You're, you, 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 can never, you can never parallel uh, fascists and, 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 and racists and those, who, and those who protest them. Um, what was being yelled by the side of the fascists and the racists? Yeah. Uh, what was being screamed? Racist, anti-Semitic, sexist, uh, nihilist. And those who were protesting them, you cannot parallel their motivations nor their actions. And I think we had to be bold and brave and honest as a society and be very clear to say there's no place for that conversation. There's no place for that in this country. You know, this country and the idea behind this country is one of the most powerful social experiments that this world has ever seen. Our job now is to protect that. And the only way we can protect that is to make sure that all people feel a vested sense of interest in what this country is. In the words of Abraham Lincoln, we have to bind up the nation's wounds. That was a very different time for this young country. But is that as true now today? Oh, I, I think it's, it's just as true now as ever before. Because I think that just because we have put covering on the wounds does not mean there's not still cuts that we don't have to deal with. 
And you know, and I think it does become a fundamental question for us as a society. We have to ask ourselves, do we want to be pharmacists on these issues or do we want to be doctors? Mm. A pharmacist will give you drugs and make you feel better. A pharmacist will give you something and help you go about your day. You're not dealing with the actual issue, but you're simply saying this will help you get through your day. A doctor says we have got to be able to cut into the root of what's going on, and that is the only way we're going to deal with this. And, and, and I don't think on these issues, on these core issues of, 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 of race, on these core issues of inequality, mm -hmm. on these core issues of economic disparity, I don't think it's good enough to just give people something or give them a, 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 a talking point and simply say, now this will help you to feel better about what we've created. We've got to get to the core of the fact that there are still fundamental issues of inequality and fundamental issues of disparity that this country has still not dealt with or still not wrestled with. Have you gone to the White House this year? I have not. Would you go? Would you like to sit down with President Trump with the administration to deal with and, and talk about how, how to tackle some of these issues? I, I, I would sit down with anybody who's serious about making progress on these various issues. Okay, but what does that mean, Wes? Do you think he is? I think that if you look at the policies that have been pushed forward, uh, we have not made enough progress. And that position and the, bull pit and the bully pulpit and the administration has an incredibly important role to play when it comes to not just leading a conversation, but also being able to help usher in policies that are going to have real and significant impacts on people who are living in poverty in this country. And so whether or not we're talking about, you know, whether or not we're talking about issues like DACA, where that is gonna have a significant and distinct impact on people and move more people into poverty than actually move them out of them. Or whether we're talking about, you know, the fact that we still have not had an extension on SHIP. Uh, children's yes. health insurance, kids' health insurance. This is something that the White House, this is something that Congress, this is something that all of our leaders, all the people who we put into office, they have a responsibility to take that seriously. And, 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 the, and the hope is that this administration takes a true and genuine lead on this. You sound pretty fed up with Washington. If that's the case, that reflects how a lot of Americans feel right now. Uh, blame divided equally among, you know, uh, in Congress. Um, I, your resume makes a lot of people think that you're going to run one day for public office. You haven't yet. Rhodes Scholar, Johns Hopkins, your story, where you came from, um, your CEO of the biggest anti-poverty organization in New York now. Do you think about it? Do you think about public service in Washington? I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if I said that, that I don't think about it because I think all of us kind of think about where's the place that we can put the best use and put the best impact uh, to really make sure we're creating concrete and substantial differences. I'm also completely confident and certain that the work we're doing right now, this poverty fight, there is nothing more important that we should be talking about or, or, or solving for. Do you think you can do more? A number of CEOs uh, tell me including Howard Schultz, you know, former CEO, chairman of, of Starbucks, who a lot of people are talking about, we'll see if he runs in 2020. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these CEOs tell me, Ursula Burns, mm -hmm. former CEO of Xerox, they, they don't want to run because they, they think they can get more done in the corner office as the chief executive than they can in Washington. Is that how you feel, at least right now, that the work you can do now leading Robin Hood can be more effective than public policy making? I, I think, I think, I can be incredibly effective, and the work of Robin Hood can be incredibly effective in dealing with the poverty issue. I also know we cannot do it with, if we have to combat against bad policies. I think that bad po I think the policies that are being debated and discussed right now are things that are either going to make our job easier or things that are make our job impossible. So I think you know public service do, you know running for office doesn't need to be everybody everybody's journey, and I can tell you right now. I would be perfectly happy if I never ever ran for anything in my life. I also know though, I can't do my job. We can't do our job if we constantly have to push against bad policies that are keeping people and putting people in a greater state of poverty. I can't do my job 
if we have bad policies that are being debated and discussed. And so I know that, you know, regardless who is sitting in what seat, they are going to know that my steady and continued, not just passion, but commitment Mm -hmm. is to those who oftentimes have been completely left out of conversations. Uh, As we wrap up, let's talk about the most important thing in your life, and that is being a father and a husband. And you dedicate your book uh, to, let me find it here, The Women Who Helped Shape My Journey to Manhood. You are now, you and your wife are now shaping the journey for your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, Being a parent is the hardest job in the world. I can attest to that. (laughs) You got that right. What do you... Talk to me about being a dad, your responsibility as a dad, uh, having grown up, grown up much of your childhood without a father, yeah. um, and what you want your kids to say about you one day, Wes. You know, I, I, I think part of it, because um, I didn't grow up with my dad, I, there was nothing that was more exciting to me than actually being a parent. Yeah. Um, there was nothing more exciting, me, exciting to me than, than, than the love that we can impart upon our kids. Right. Uh, And I'm so proud of them. They are really, really good kids and they are sweet and they are kind. And and the thing that I really want them to be more than anything else is I want them to be empathetic. I want them to know that the you know, and I told them, I said, the world doesn't revolve around you, but the world doesn't exist without you. And and the thing that I want them to say about me is I want them to say that I was passionate about my time here on this planet, that I love them incessantly and would do anything for them. And my goal and my mission in the work that I do is I just fundamentally want to make the world a better place for them. And then I want them to then take on their rightful place in doing the same thing Mm. for their children and their grandchildren. And then that's how we're going to have to keep this thing going. Um, there's nothing that I know my children can't do, but there's nothing that I want them to do more than just to grow up and understand the responsibility they have to make this thing a little bit better for everybody else. You, you're doing that. Robin Hood is doing that in spades. So from all of us, for our children and for all of those less fortunate than you and I sitting here, we thank you. I thank you. Thank you, Wes. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.